Einstein and Sock Monkey, Episode 5, Responsive Web Design, recorded October 21st, 2010. <laughs> There's a whole sock monkey culture connected to all this. I believe that Einstein was a lazy procrastinator like me. Yeah, but can you guys tell me what this has to do with um, web design? Welcome to Einstein and Sock Monkey, the podcast for web geeks and website owners. I'm Steve Martin, one of your hosts. And I'm Ron Zazadinsky, your other host. How's it going, Ron? Good, good. Things are good. I actually signed uh, two new web design contracts yesterday, so it's always exciting and That's fun to good. be starting new projects. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious, you know, I'd be actually curious for feedback from some of our listeners about, you know, we find, I find the last several years the summer has been very slow, like there's this regular lull in new work coming in mm-hmm. in the web design and development world, and then... It seems like September hits and like everybody is back in gear and I just, you know kids are in school focused on work parents are at work focused on work and man it's just like our, the number of inquiries we get goes through the roof really and, yeah we probably got I would say seven or eight other estimates out there still wow exactly so it's so I, I would crazy <clears throat> I guess I never really crazy thought good. about it I, w- I would think that near near the end of the year people would like their budgets used up yeah you know, that type of thing. My theory is it's the summer lull. You know, people are vacationing and frolicking and things are slower. They're not thinking about what the next step is. Then there's another slowdown, you know, kind of end of November through December, just with all the holidays and all that, that that brings in everybody's personal life. And then then we seem to see another spike right after January 1st, where, like you said, then it's like the new budgets are available and there's another spike. Yeah. So anyway, so it's exciting. Got a lot of stuff going on and landing some nice, nice projects. So. Right. How about you? How are things going at the the new job for the big Pray. global corporation? <laughs> it's going really super well. Um, I'm I'm going I'm doing user experience design, which is what I do. So um, when I started, I it, it was kind of a long story how I fell into the job, but I just kind of fell into it and um, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> That's great. And so I'm working on user interfaces for. The back-end system for security cameras. And if my boss is listening, I love my job. <laughs> no, I seriously do. It's a lot of fun. That's about half of the time I'm doing that. And the other half, I'm actually just I'm getting paid to think up brand new ideas for stuff to invent, which is a lot of fun. And basing that on user research and a lot of the tools that I'm using anyway. So, yeah, it's, it's Sounds awesome. Sounds creative. It is very creative, and it's a lot, and mm, I like that. I'm jealous. That is yeah. one part of my job that um, I don't get enough of right now is the creativity part. Yeah. I would say we're we're busy enough that I'm you know doing the management of people and uh, writing estimates and you know negotiating and all that, which I enjoy too. I like that a lot, but it's nice to have some like creative. Well, and I was really I was too. honestly really worried when I when I first got the job. Because it's, you know, stereotypical corporate America. Mm-hmm. The company I'm working for has like 117,000 employees wow. worldwide. Wow, that is a lot. <clears throat> and so the uh, 
I, I was afraid of the cubicles. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> right. But um, do you have a cubicle? Or? I've got a cubicle. Oh my gosh! But it's, it's very open. Yes. So all, Dilbert suddenly makes a lot more sense to me now. <laughs> but um, I've got a nice big window. It overlooks some, you know, like a like a bunch of trees and stuff. So it's it's really nice for now. So I I, I have no complaints. It's really great. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. I look forward to hearing how that uh, how that develops. Yeah, definitely. You could bring some of that user experience from the larger corporate world to our yeah. podcast, which is, of course, about yeah. user experience as well as web design and development. Exactly. So. Yeah. Very cool. Shall we move on to the news? Yeah. Well, the first news item that I have today is just kind of letting everybody know that World Usability Day 2010 hmm. is just around the corner. And what on earth is that? Well, Ron, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, World Usability Day is uh, this year is 11th of November, and 11 11 10. 11 10. Oh, it is 11 11 10. Wow. Okay. So next year will be more fun <clears throat> if it's the right. same day. I don't know if it is, but then it would be 11 11 11. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, the from their web the website is worldusabilityday.org, and um, basically what is on that website is a lot of events all over the world um, for for World Usability Day uh, and most mostly to let people know that usability is important and this is not just website usability I because it's organized by the um, Usability Professionals, Professionals Association which is worldwide has chapters all over the place and um, uh, so from this site, it says uh, communication is the theme for World Usability Day 2010, and it's to serve as an impetus to creating greater awareness for designs, products, and services that improve and facilitate communication around the world. So there's a lot of information on that site, um, and uh, a lot of really big sponsors for it. So yeah, if that's I'm, great, I think that's pretty yeah. cool because you know I think. Uh, Anything that promotes uh, the appreciation and understanding of usability and design, and not just, again, in a web context, but in a larger everything context, I think is fantastic. Yeah, and looking at their, the map of where events are listed, um, it looks heavily, heavily concentrated in Europe, actually. Oh, There's a lot sweet. all over uh, North America. A few down, it looks like, in Brazil, um, one in Africa, a few in, in Japan and, and in Eastern Asia. So, um, but they're all over the place. So wherever you are, take a look at the worldusabilityday.org and see what events are around there and let everybody know how important usability is to everybody. Excellent. I love it. I love it. We'll have to check that out and have some local event here in Fort Collins somehow to support that. That'd be cool. Uh, see, my I just have one news item today because uh, I'm going to blather on forever about <laughs> responsive web design for our feature, but this is related. Uh, so my news item is that the BlackBerry 6 OS is available on the uh, on two units now, the BlackBerry Style, which is the 9670, and the BlackBerry Torch, which is the 9800. And uh, Style 9670 on Sprint begins shipping October 31st, so uh, just uh, at the end of the month here, less than about a week away. And the significance of that is that um, the web browser within BlackBerry prior to now had been proprietary um, that BlackBerry developed themselves. Yeah. And as of OS 6, they're using WebKit as their oh they are yep as their mobile rendering engine within their new uh, their new browser their whole new OS. And I've been checking out the OS online and it looks pretty slick. Um, you know, within the U.S. and the mobile world, the big three are Android iPhone and BlackBerry. Right. So now with that move, um, 
as that gains more acceptance, then basically the majority in the U.S. of mobile web browsers will all be using WebKit. Wow. So that has some big implications for responsive web design and just web development in general. It really does, because I know that the... I'm not sure which version of OS it was. I, I used someone... I don't have a BlackBerry. I've got an iPhone. But I used somebody's BlackBerry a while ago, and I thought, oh, I'm going to see what my website looks like oh, on and, BlackBerry. And, and it was wretched <laughs> oh, no. and hard to use and... Partially because there was no touch screen. It just had this the little oh, the wheel. The I like the wheel, wheel though. It's kind of a neat. Yeah, it was device. it was it was hard. I mean, I'm sure if it's one thing, one of those things. Once you get used to it, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, it is nice that it's going to be WebKit because that's going to be easy to develop for mm-hmm. and so on. So. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a little bit. Cool. The last thing I wanted to mention today is to uh, encourage everyone to take. A list right. of parts web design survey for the year for 2010, and every year I think um, the website says they've been doing this since 2007, <clears throat> and it was kind of uh, came on from an event apart, and they wanted to get to know who is, who is in the web design world, not just design, but web anybody who builds websites, and so it's a it's like a 20 30 question survey. And it's at alistapart.com slash articles slash survey2010, and that'll be in the show notes. I'm sure if you just go to alistapart.com, you'll find a link, as well as on our website. I put up a a link to the uh, survey. But it's always a lot of great information, not only demographics, but how many people in the web world are working for companies versus themselves, the income range for different kinds of... um, uh, job descriptions, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I looked at that in the past. That's really helpful just yeah. to see what your your colleagues are uh, earning around the world. Right, and it can help field. you with your own pricing, possibly. Exactly. It or does. if you're if you're hiring somebody, right. Or if you're just getting into the web design world, coming mm-hmm. out of college or what whatever, you can figure out, you know, if does it make more sense for me to focus on Flash development mm-hmm. or focus on backend coding? Or... One of the things I found in past editions of that were. Uh, how much time per week um, people are spending at their job. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, so it's always interesting to see the stats of how many people are working more than 40 hours, and they, they break it down into a number of categories, and that's right. always eye-opening. Definitely, yeah. Well, I've, well, heard it, I've heard it said that for those who are self-employed or starting your own business, that it always takes longer than you think, you're going to work harder than you thought, and you'll make less money than you thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty true. <laughs> Yeah, there are the the whole kind of going back to you know the talk about my job that I loved working for myself, the flexibility, and the time that I had on to my to myself and deciding which projects to take and so forth. But there is something to be said for a, a regular paycheck. Mm-hmm. You know, I may not have as much freedom on some areas, but um, that that's you know it kind of goes both ways. Right. But hey, you're able to. Uh Take a long lunch here in the middle of the day to come over to our office yeah, don't, and record don't say the that podcast. Too loud. So we're very thankful. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, well, um, we're excited that our feature this week is um, Ron is going to be talking to us about responsive web design. I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. So, um, yeah, so I want to talk about responsive web design, why it's important, and why it's an important part of the future of the web. Uh, you know what it is and how it fits into the overall scheme of design going forward. So uh, I'll read the definition by Ethan Marcotte, who's one of the proponents of responsive web design, and his definition of it is a flexible grid with flexible images 
that incorporates media queries to create a responsive, adaptive layout. Okay, so that's a lot of so words. <laughs> in human speech, that in is. In human speech. Uh, we'll actually break that down into pieces in human speech as we go. I think yeah. that'll be the way to go here. Um, so what this is about, it's really all about the rise of mobile and the convergence of web browsers that are being used in both mobile devices and desktop operating systems. Uh, so as web designers and developers, there are several questions that I find come up over and over, and maybe you, you can comment on this too, Steve, but one of them is, should I create a particular layout as a fixed width layout or as a fluid slash liquid layout, you know, whereas you change the right. viewport dimensions, the, the width of the design shifts with the width of the viewport in some fashion. It might not be one-to-one, -one, but it's, you know, it's adapting to that. Mm -hmm. And then can I create a site that works well on desktop monitors as well as laptops as well as mobile devices all at the same time? So I think those are some challenging questions that come up in the you know in the design phase and the development phase. And, right. And so responsive web design gives us some tools to help answer these questions. And one really important aspect of this, I think you're going to continue to hear more and more about responsive web design. But one important thing to understand or, or to keep in mind is that responsive web design is not the solution for the mobile web. It's one set of tools that can be very helpful. Um, but there's a bigger picture, and this fits into, you know, this is one thing, again, in a part of the bigger picture. So sometimes there's, there's a lot to it, and so often when people are talking about it, they're just talking about responsive web design and not necessarily explaining the, the larger context that this is just one way and not necessarily the best way. Um, so we'll talk a little more about that at the end, about the larger picture. So let me start, I want to start with just a brief history of browsers, and maybe you can um, uh, share your experience with this too. So before web standards, you know, so this is back in like the IE5 and earlier days, right. um, you know, <clears throat> designing for the web was a mess, yeah. right? Because <laughs> every, there were multiple browsers, Netscape was, was huge, and Internet Explorer was huge, and they had proprietary ways of doing things. There was no consistency. Yeah, and you had all the all the sites that say this site best viewed. With exactly. Netscape four point one. Exactly. Oh, those were just horrible days because yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of work to get a website to render correctly the way you wanted it to in multiple browsers. I mean, you're almost creating you know unique sites for each browser, not quite, yeah, but totally. It, it was a lot of work. Um, but then things finally started converging with the um, adoption of web standards by the browser manufacturers. And in that same time frame when that happened, um, for screen sizes, there was a consistency as well. And you know, we finally had graduated from the 800 by 600 screen size to 1024 by 768 being what I would consider at that time the lowest common denominator. Right. That you, if you design for that browser or that screen size, you're probably you know, reasonably safe for, for many users. Majority of users out there would, would be able to see your design the way you had intended it to. There wasn't a lot of variation beyond that. Um, and at that same time, and this is maybe, what, four years ago when web standards were finally starting to solidify, we were moving away from table-based designs to CSS layouts, right. and the standards thing was starting to take hold across all the different browsers. And at that time, though, if you look at the mobile space, it was all over the place, right? And then the, oh, the variety yeah. of OS's, operating systems and mobile, the browsers were all over the place. Even connectivity, you know, speeds. So mobile development at that time was really specialized. You know, you focused on that typically, or you didn't do it at all, which is where I was. Right. And to me, it was like there was so much variation and diversity. It's like I'm not even going to think about this because it just doesn't. It's too hard. Yeah, I remember wanting to develop a, a version of my site for a mobile platform, but at the time it was mostly text, 
mm-hmm. and and you know there's like those these old Nokia phones with nothing but a keypad and I just looked at the the specs for designing for that and just gave up. I didn't even bother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You bet. So so the picture today is significantly different. In fact, it's it's amazingly different. And it kind of snuck up on me, and I think this was kind of all just coalesced in the last, this year really, you know, in 2010. Yeah. So the picture today is that we've got significant conversions and support for web standards in the desktop operating system browsers. So, for example, we've got Firefox, which is using the Gecko rendering engine, very web standards uh, oriented. Uh, Chrome and Safari using WebKit, also excellent, probably the best web standard support, and, and HTML5 CSS3 support so far. Um, Internet Explorer 7 and 8 are the dominant IE Internet Explorer browsers out there, and they are reasonably web standards compliant. You know, IE 7 still has some issues, but they're not nearly as bad as the IE 6 issues. And IE 6 is finally under 10% usage um, globally, at least. Um, For the first time, it's back down to single digits, and hopefully now with uh, IE 9, beta is out, and once that starts gaining more momentum, hopefully IE 6 will disappear. You know, that's the interesting thing is IE9, as you might be aware, is only works in uh, Vista and Windows 7. It will not work in XP. Oh, I had not. Yeah, so at first I was pretty angry because I run, <laughs> I run um, VMware Fusion and I've, on my Mac, so I can run Windows XP right now. Um, so I can test on one machine, I can test on both platforms, PC and Mac, because I really like that convenience. Um, and I don't have a full license yet for Windows 7. And so I was kind of mad about IE9 not working in XP, but I think that really could be a good thing in the long run um, because maybe it will convince a lot of businesses, which seems to be where IE is still embedded and IE6 mm-hmm. is still entrenched. Uh, when they upgrade from XP to 7, then they'll be forced to move to IE9, which is the best web standards compliant browser for Microsoft yet. Um, and it does fully support, well, it supports media queries completely and um, a bunch of other CSS3 things that are important. So, so anyway, um, lots of conversions for web standards and HTML5 CSS3 support in desktop browsers. And then interestingly, in a total reversal, it's even more consistent in mobile web browsers. So catch this. So the big three platforms we talked about were Android, iOS, and BlackBerry. Android uses Chrome which is WebKit, right. iOS uses Safari, WebKit, and now BlackBerry 6 is using WebKit. So basically all of the big three in, in the US are all using WebKit. So there's just one browser, essentially, that we right. have to worry about as designers, developers, because that's, that's the rendering nice. engine behind all of those browsers. Now the one monkey wrench in that is that Windows Phone 7 just came out. And um, I have not looked into that. Who knows what the heck they use for a rendering yeah. engine. <laughs> um, hopefully Well, I, I may be wrong, but I heard some rumors that the IE9 was thinking of going to WebKit. Is that right? I, I don't know. I haven't. Uh, I really haven't heard too much about what's behind IE9 right I, now. I have no idea. That was just... Uh, yeah. Maybe I dreamed that. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. But um, yeah, we'll have to find more about that. So in the, in the mobile world... It's even more consistent than the desktop operating systems, which is unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So with this convergence then, uh, what that really means is that um, as web designers and developers for desktop, if that's where our focus has been, it is definitely now time for us to, across the board, start paying attention to mobile because it's so much easier to look at that now. Now that's a big transition. It should be underestimated what it takes to do things correctly for mobile. 
you know, it's not just, okay, now we'll make stuff for mobile. And we can investigate that more later and maybe some other podcasts in the future too. So here's some other reasons for paying attention to mobile that are even more compelling that really got my attention. Um, and we'll have links in the show notes to all these uh, um, stats here. So mobile internet adoption has outpaced desktop internet adoption by eight times by a factor of eight. That's in 2009, a whole year ago. Uh, AT&T, which uh, at least currently is still the exclusive carrier, of course, for the iPhone, uh, has saw a 4,932% increase in mobile traffic data in the last three years. Wow. That's <laughs> pretty big. That's a big number. And smartphone sales are predicted to surpass worldwide PC sales by the end of 2011. Really? Mm -hmm. And the biggest number that got my attention was, where's all this going? Uh, I don't have a stat for the... Reference for this one, but forecasters, I've heard it said that forecasters are predicting that in just four years, that roughly around 2014, there will be more mobile devices connected to the internet than all the desktops and laptops in the world combined. Wow, that's, yeah, yeah definitely going mobile for sure. Exactly, that's heavily going that way. So it's time to start paying attention to mobile, and, you know, we've got the tools now to do it. So things are really coming together in an incredibly new way, in a better way. So to summarize the current state of the web, uh, display sizes are all over the place, perhaps the worst of ever, right? Because we've got small devices like mobile phones, we've got mid-sized devices like tablets and iPads, and we've mm -hmm. got and netbooks and then right. laptops and desktops, which have large monitors, you know, it's all over the place. But at the same time, the majority of desktop OS browsers have adopted web standards with more consistency than any time in history. And the majority of mobile browsers in the US are using WebKit. Um, which is one of the dominant desktop OS rendering engines as well. So this is all good. Now I keep stressing in the US because in other parts of the world outside the US, um, Nokia has a strong presence. I believe they are still using, I think they might still be using Symbian as their OS and I'm oh, not yeah. sure what their browser is. Um, and I could be wrong about Nokia and Symbian, but I believe Symbian is still one of the major OSs out there uh, in other parts of the world. So. Do you know how much Opera is used? Because I know that... And mobile Opera is actually pretty good on the standards compliance. Okay. So, yeah, so if uh, OSs that are using that in the mobile context are still kind of fit right along with what we're oh, talking okay. about here today. Okay. okay, so the tools that we're going to use to address, uh, address these things and create websites that... The idea here is that we're going to try to create websites that have the potential to adapt to the device and work well on different devices. Um, so that's, that's the goal. So the approach is called responsive web design or responsive design. And one of the leading proponents is Ethan Marcotte. He wrote an excellent article uh, for A List Apart in May of this year. And that's at uh, alistapart.com forward slash articles forward slash responsive dash web dash design. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Great article. So that's a, a good place to start and, um, and understand what's going on. So some of the key components here and how you would apply them. So what the first component is a flexible grid. So there's really two pieces in that statement. A grid-based layout, and Steve, I don't know, have you done grid-based layout stuff when you were doing more design or not yeah, so much? I, some? some, yeah. So you know, a grid layout is, I don't know if you can explain it, because that's one thing I have a hard time just talking about. So you get a draw <laughs> picture of it, putting you on the spot here. I don't know if that's possible. but Yeah, well, there are a lot of, a lot of tools out there to um, help set up grid systems. And so, and it's not like a th like a three-column grid, like we, maybe we'd think about for a right. website. 
there's a bunch of smaller columns. Right, and exactly. You, and you break up the design, and it, this helps visually, for one, but I guess it also helps with the... Well, it helps visually, and then, so yeah, you're right, it's like a number of smaller columns, and then um, that allows you to have a multiple column layout, like you said, maybe a two or three column right. layout, but then maybe you have one element that spans a couple columns, right. or an element that spans a column and a half, so it's half the page, but it provides a really clear reference for the designer, so that once the design is finished, there's a visual consistency and relationship among all the content and yeah, aspects yeah. on the page. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great way to go for, from a design perspective, and there's lots of information out there about grid-based design. Um, so that's helpful. You don't have to do that for responsive web design, but it is very helpful as a, as a best practice kind of way to go. Um, then flexible means that we are going in the sizing things in proportions and percentages for our units of width as opposed to pixels. And that's going to help us create a fluid layout that can adapt to different viewport and different display sizes. So that's the beginning piece of it. And that's not, that's opposed to using an EM or something. Right, as opposed to using EMs, it's actually using percentages. Okay. Um, because it's, you want things to be relative to, basically what you're going to do is start with a, a reference design. So when you're starting with responsive web design, you want to do a little user research and figure out what context are most people using my content in. Is it laptop? Is it desktop? Is it mobile? And then really you want to create your reference design and that for that platform. And then from there, you're going to scale up and down both. Okay. Um, so that it works in other devices and other contexts. Gotcha. Right. So that's why percentage is better because then you're starting with, it's not really relative to font size, right? It's relative to the viewport area. Sure. And um, viewport means the visible part of the web browser window. So on a mobile device, it's usually the whole screen, but like on a you know, web browser, you've got tabs and navigation bar buttons and stuff. Mm -hmm. It doesn't count that. It's just the viewable part okay. is the viewport. Um, so images also need to be flexible so that they are fluid. And the way you do that mm -hmm. is using a tag, there's two key pieces. So one is you use a style on the main image tag, you would um, apply the style max-width 100%. That's not mm -hmm. intuitive, but what that means is you oh, never yeah. want any image to be larger than the container holding it. Oh, okay. I see, yeah. So if you have a container that's larger than the image, that's fine. The image will just render in its native dimensions. But then as you shrink the container, if the container hits the size of the image and then starts getting smaller, well, not even that. It just it, it will start scaling down, both in width and height, which is also not intuitive. So if you just set the max width, width to 100%, okay. right, as you scale down the container, the image actually scales down as you shrink the container. Nice. Yeah, which is a really interesting effect. And, and again, it keeps its proportions, so width and height. One key thing, though, is in the HTML, you don't specify the width and height of the image in the markup. Oh. Okay. That's really important. Otherwise, it won't be. Only in the styles. Right. So you're just doing the image with the source and an alt tag, and that's really it. Huh. No width and height in the HTML. So that's a shift in how we do things. Okay. Right. Cool. Um, that technique can be applied not only to image, the main image tag, but also to video and object tags. Really? Yep. So if you're embedding Flash using object or, or Java applet using object, it will also then have that same uh, fluid scaling capability. So that's very helpful because then the relationship of your images to your text content maintains the same relationships as you're doing the fluid resizing pieces. And then the final um, component to this responsive web design technique is a, a CSS3 feature called Media Queries. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that here. 
Um, so what this does is media queries allow conditional styling in your style sheet. It's essentially if-thens in your style sheet. And you can target all kinds of parameters like the viewport size, device sizes, and even more. So I'll give you a longer list here in a moment. But it allows you to, um, to change the CSS that's being applied based on the size of the viewport or the size of the device. That's nice. Yeah. So in the end, when you combine all these things together, um, this is a quote from Jeff Zeldman, Jeffrey Zeldman. He said, it's what some of us were trying to do with liquid designs back in the 1990s, only it doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so true. <laughs> so that's been my uh, experience with responsive design so far. So let's talk about this media queries piece a little more, because this really is the yeah. crux, the crux of, of how you chain, how you set it so that the uh, the layout shifts in response to the viewport size or device dimensions. Um, so let's back up a step to media types. So media types have been around for a long time, right? If you think about how you link a style sheet to a web design, we use uh, you know a link statement, um, an href for the you know where the style sheet lives, and then typically you would use a media equals something. Um, by default, you might use media equals all, meaning that whether you're looking at your site on a screen or it's printing out or it's on a handheld device or whatever, you're going to apply this style sheet to all those contexts, all those media. Um, and the th those are probably the three most, the four most common used media types for style sheet linking. It would be all, screen, which would mean that style sheet would only apply to people viewing on a screen. Print, you can make a custom right print style sheet so that when you print, your site, uh, you could hide background images, for example, and other things to make it more legible on a printed page. Uh, or handheld, which was uh, not a so great technique for adapting a site to mobile devices. Um, anyway, but it is a technique out there that can help. So these have been around a long time, and that, that's been used for years and years. So media queries just extend that capability. Mm -hmm. So the simplest way to maybe you know, extend the, the uh, the description of how it works is you could link a style sheet now using media equals and instead of just saying screen with media queries you could say media equals screen and max dash width colon 340 pixels oh. so you're putting conditional logic right in there so if it's a screen and it's no more than 340 pixels wide then load a particular style sheet hmm. isn't that interesting it's nice because I <clears throat> I can remember very well a specific project I was working on about five years ago and they I was trying to code the thing so it would change the design depending on the size of the screen that the person was using mm -hmm. and even if they uh, expanded the size of their browser window mm -hmm. and the amount of JavaScript that I had to mess with was ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> right yeah it was not easy and then it still didn't work very well right exactly and now so now this is built into CSS3 um, and the way you would, you can now actually employ it. So that's that, that example helps by hopefully understand how it would relate to what you've already been doing, linking style sheets. But you can actually use media queries directly in a style sheet and have sections of your style sheet that apply to different uh, conditions. So you would use the at symbol media, and then right on the style sheet, it's just at media screen and max dash width colon 340 pixels, and then a set of curly braces. And within there, you put all the styles that you want to apply in that context. Huh. And you can have multiples of these, um, so you have you can have as many different contexts as you want. Wow! So it's really cool. So here's the really cool stuff. So here's a list of what you can trigger on. So it's you can do um, min width 
max width, width, height, that all relates to the viewport dimensions. You can do device width and device height. So if you're trying to target a specific device that has like a unique set of dimensions to it, you can do that. Really? Yep. You can do it based on device resolution and specify that either in dots per inch or dots per centimeter. So if you're targeting like an iPhone 4 only, you, yeah. can, you can look for you know the DPI of whatever it is, 361 or whatever the dots yeah. per inch is on an iPhone and have a separate style just for that. Yeah. Um, you can do it based specific. On, it is. Uh, you could do it based on orientation, meaning landscape versus portrait on the device, uh, aspect ratio, device aspect ratio, uh, the color depth of the device. Uh, huh. Yeah, whether it's monochrome and a couple others. So there's a link on the show notes here to a w3.org page that lists all the media queries and, and what the values are that you can specify. So pretty cool stuff. Okay, so the basic design construct here is to consider how to lay out the content of your web page appropriately for different screen sizes and then you're going to use media queries to implement. So let's just take one example. So let's say you have a three column layout uh, for your web page. As, as the viewport gets smaller, you might, you know, you'll shrink the columns, the columns will shrink, but at some point the columns might be too narrow to really be meaningful and useful to read. Like what's one in there. word per line. Yeah, exactly. It's like one word per line. That'd be ridiculous. So at some point, you can then set the media queries to shift that to a two-column layout instead of a three-column layout. Oh, and that's nice. Right. That's the general idea. And then if you get really small, say it's on a mobile device, then you'd go down to like a one-column layout. Huh. So that, that's what you're trying to achieve with this. So I, I wanted to play with this, so I created an example for myself by converting the homepage of one of my client sites into a responsive design just as a test. So, and uh, you can check it out if you want. The URL is codegeek.net forward slash amscan, A-M-S-C-A-N dash R-W-D for responsive web design. That's the American Scandinavian Foundation's homepage. We haven't done this on their live site. This is only on the homepage that we did it for testing so far. Okay, but if you resize the viewport when you're looking at that, you should see, um, you know, you'll see, what you'll see is as you get start getting smaller, the images will start getting smaller, the columns getting narrower, and then when you're below, I think, 800 pixels, it'll jump to a two-column layout. It's not coming up. Um, yeah, yeah it's this, our Comcast connection's funky. Yeah, go to, go to, <laughs> go to codegeek.net first. Okay. And then after that's showing, then go to uh, forward slash amscan dash rwd. Stupid time. Yeah, it's, I don't understand why that does that, but it does. So we'll let Steve uh, take a minute to play with that. Am scan. A scan. S C A N. Yeah, yeah. S C A N. Okay. We'll just, I should have just forwarded it. Like fix this in post. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I see that. Yeah. Cool. So you see how it pops to two columns right. and then it pops to one. And column. I notice when nice. it's still within three columns, the images are changing size. Uh -huh. Like those two images around the center of the page actually do change dimension slightly as you're uh, scaling. Yeah, they do. Right. Awesome. And then I set some styles that are more specific to the iPad just to play with it. I use the um, the device width feature. So for example, on the iPad here, I'm showing Steve. Uh, we've got a two column layout, but then if you switch the orientation to portrait, it shifts to a one. Nice. Layout. Not that that would be the perfect, you know, technique for an iPad, but it well, shows that you can, you know, you can change the design yeah. based on the uh, orientation of the device. 
That's really nice. Yeah, so the idea here is that you have just one HTML file, right? And then you can decide what device ranges you want to make that work for and then adjust styles to, to make it render nicely in those. You've got to be careful how you make that HTML file, obviously. Yes, you do. So it definitely takes a different skill set or a different process in the design phase and in the coding phase. I'm guessing, you know, the, the hardest part is going to be for the designer, really, because they need to... Uh, you know, the usability team first needs to, and user experience team needs to define what devices are they're going to target specifically. Right. And the designer really needs to come up with layouts for each of those designs or each of those uh, devices. Um, you know, so there's a framework that you're planning for. Because if you go from three to two columns, what do you do with that third column that's gone? What do you mean? Right. The so bottom so, so the what I did on or, mine is I, yeah. yeah, I moved that one to the bottom and went full width, 100% width on that mm -hmm. one. But that might not be the right solution for every website sure. by any yeah, means, right? Totally. So, yeah, it definitely takes more thought on the design side. And then on the coding side, it takes a little more time as well. So I'm guessing it's probably 50% more on the design side and maybe 20% more on the coding side. But That's still not bad, though, when you, when you think of how much time it would cost otherwise to completely code a brand-new mm -hmm. iPhone site. site. And then you've got to have, mm -hmm. like, a, a, a BlackBerry site and all that kind of mess. Right. Um, so that might be a good jumping off point, actually, for the, for this larger discussion of, um, of you know, is this a panacea? Is this the be-all and end-all of where web design is going in the future? I think this is going to be a huge component of where web design goes in the future because it provides incredible power to tailor a layout so that it works in a lot of different contexts. But if you, you know, to do design right, if, if you just you know if you have decided that mobile is one of the contexts that people are using your site um, I, I think it's really important to give a lot of thought and planning to how do people want to use your content in the mobile context and mm -hmm. see where that leads because that might lead in a totally different direction um, often in a mobile context people use content very differently than they do sitting at a desktop or a laptop absolutely and so it might you know that path might lead you to an app for all the different phones instead of a website. Or it might lead to a mobile-specific site that is different than the main website. So don't consider responsive web design as the be-all, end-all. It's just one of our tools that I think... True, that's a good point. Yeah. And here's one of my favorite examples is if you think about Google Maps, if I'm using that on my mobile device, then I'm using it in context of being mobile. I have specific needs. Like if I pull up the map and I put in an address, that's probably where I want to go to right off the bat. Right. And I probably want to get there from where I am right now. Right. So by default, I probably want to default to the starting point as current location and then whatever I put in as the destination. Mm -hmm. um, traffic is probably much more important to me if I'm in the mobile context. So I'd want to be able to turn on and off the traffic view very easily. Right. Whereas if I'm sitting at home, Okay, where I'm starting, where I'm physically located may not matter at all for the directions I'm looking for, you know? Right. Yeah, I might be looking for, who knows, multiple trips, all kinds of stuff. I might be playing around with routes. Um, I probably don't, you know, I don't care as much about traffic. I might care a little bit about traffic if I'm leaving shortly. But, you know, so the needs for the user are very different in the different yeah. contexts. And that's, that's, from the user experience point of view, that's really important to figure that out. Because if you have a a site that has like a bunch of videos on it for example there's it's going to be completely different for you to mess with that whether it's on mobile or on a desktop or, exactly. or an iPad or whatever that is exactly so another good example on that Google Maps uh, scenario is if I'm in the desktop context then there's links for um, 
sharing that map or cutting and pasting that code to embed that map like in another web page. Right. Whereas in a mobile context, I probably don't care about that stuff. So just mm -hmm. get it out of there so it's not cluttering up my interface. Right. So very different things and, and different approaches. So that might not be one website that does all of that. That might well, you be. could theoretically still have all that stuff. I mean, maybe it's more bandwidth, and that's another consideration. It but is. you could just with the with the media queries, you could have it hide certain elements that you don't want, or that you don't think the person would need, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that you'd still have that one site. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. so that that is one approach, and you hit on I think one of the key parameters to evaluate is what is the website payload coming down with that? Because right. if you're if you're just using display none in the style sheet to hide things that content is downloading to it's the device and then just being hidden. Right. So that's an important thing to consider. So if you're doing a site where your default reference point is a desktop and then you're adjusting for mobile, realize that you're not optimized for mobile. Right. You're downloading a lot more stuff. Uh -huh. So it's just it's, it's important to consider. You know, if the mobile context is really the key area where people are doing, you want to start there and then scale up. Or maybe, again, maybe it's two solutions. So keep an open mind. Not a bulletproof thing. Okay, so let's, I'm um, circling back to just a few details to wrap up here. So what about browser support for this stuff, for CSS3? Oh, my questions. Oh, yeah. good. <laughs> so, Ron, what's the browser support? Yeah, what's the browser support look like? Well, surprisingly good. Um, so Opera, so CSS3 media queries specifically are supported in the following browsers. Opera 9.5 and up, and we're in the 10 series now. Firefox 3.5 and above, and we're now at 3.6. Uh, and I think 4 is in beta even. Um, Safari 3 and above, and we're already at 5. Right. Uh, Chrome, Mobile WebKit, Opera Mobile is pretty good. Okay. And then IE9, it's also native. So what's missing? All the other IEs. All the IEs <laughs> that are actually in use today. Yeah. <laughs> right. So here's the beauty of it. There is a JavaScript workaround that if you put this one line of code in your responsive web design HTML file. Yeah. It's on the Google code repository, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Um, it enables, using JavaScript, it will interpret the CSS media queries and allow processing of those for IE8 and below all the way back to like IE5. Wow, that's great. It might great. even be IE4. It goes way back. It also enables media queries then to be processed and implemented for Firefox 1 and 2 and Safari all the way back to Safari 2. So That's nice. So with one line of code, you now are covering almost every browser that, you know, certainly that 95% of people in Opera are using. Yeah, yeah. So for that, you know, given that, there's really no reason not to consider this as a legitimate uh, technique in the right circumstances. So pretty exciting. It just makes so much sense to have... I mean, so like you said, so many people are using web or web on their mobile step devices, mm -hmm. and it's only going to grow. I don't see why you wouldn't do this. You know exactly. Yeah, it's only going to grow. So anyway, interesting stuff. Um, I'm excited, very excited about it. I think um, there's just lots of stuff going on in this in this front on this topic. So I hope you're interested in it. We'll probably revisit it at some point and look at some sites that are using it. I've got uh, a bunch of links in the show notes here to resources. Uh, so you can get the full background and the fundamentals behind all of it. And I've also got links to examples of uh, developers and sites that are using it right now. So you can see how people are starting to think about it. There's a lot of creative ways um, to use this. So it's much more than just going from a three-column to a two-column layout. There's lots more that you can do with it. Um, and there also is some criticism. We brought up, I think, some of the key 
critical points about you know developing for the context first rather than just using this as a bullet you know magic bullet to solve every problem right. out there um, you know the the website payload and bandwidth required and also another factor is complex navigation or if you have navigation with drop down menus you know rethinking how you're going to restructure the information architecture to make this work in different contexts is is not necessarily trivial that's right. a pretty challenging thing to do if you've got a, a wide horizontal navigation with drop downs and then you shift that to a vertical it gets tricky so this isn't necessarily always simple um, so I do have a link here to uh, uh, one blog post um, from Tripolodium that was uh, somewhat critical of the technique and I encourage you to read that and read through the comments because it's a pretty thorough discussion and includes uh, a bunch of people that are big in the field right Jeremy Keith has uh, commented on that in the comments and the author responded and um, the author of the book you're going to talk about today, uh, Kenneth Kenneth Bowles, Bullen, Bowles uh, made a comment in there. So there's some, you know, mm -hmm. some definitely some, um, and a couple people from Google actually commented in there as well. Uh, so anyway, it's a really good discussion. I encourage you to check out that so you're getting the, all different sides of the story. Cool. Yeah. So that's that's what I've got. So say I'm you know average web developer guy or gal, and I want to start doing this. Mm -hmm. Is there, are, are there any like um, frameworks anywhere kind of that I can like out of the box at least play with for a while and kind of slap my design on it? Great question, and none that I have seen so far. Okay. Um, you know what I did was to find, uh, like I said, a client website, some website I already had out there that had somewhat of a column columnar layout because uh -huh. uh, that's one of the easiest to start thinking about or transforming into a right. responsive design, and I just started playing with it, and it didn't take me that long. I would say. An hour, and I, I had the you know the, the fundamental, and all I did was add some styles to the end of the style sheet, you know, um, oh, okay, to override the existing styles, right. and that was a good way to start playing with it for me. So it was a code base I was already familiar with, and not too hard. Um, so I, I'm sure that will be something that's coming, you know, or some frameworks for it. But um, but even then, you know, if you're really doing it right, you know, a custom solution. Oh, it's of course. Gonna, yeah, obviously going to be yeah. you know, serving your clients better and your clients' users better. Right. But I don't have any frameworks yet. Okay. What else? That's really all I had. <laughs> you kind of covered it all. It's, it, sounds like, it sounds like a really great way to approach um, development from the code side of things. Mm -hmm. Because ideally you shouldn't have to have all these thousand websites sitting there waiting for the JavaScript to snip it out to see what, what to feed it. Mm -hmm. It'd be nice if we just switched around like that. Yeah, one of the benefits of this is that as designers and developers, you know, if you're a front-end developer, meaning doing CSS and HTML, you know, you have control to change the, the layout right. using CSS. You don't need to use any server-side code. Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't need PHP or anything on the server-side to snip out the type of device. Now, again, depending on what your users need, that might be the right answer is right. to go that route. But... Um, Cool. But yeah, lots of control for the designer and developer. So I think it's good. I think it's going to be yeah. really exciting to see this develop. And mobile is so crucial now, I think. You know, if, if four years from now there's going to be more mobile devices connected than desktops and laptops, it matters a lot. So I think now is the time to start paying attention to this and to start using CSS3 for sure and some HTML5 as we go forward so that you're, uh, you know, most websites out there have a lifetime of two to five years and some much longer, which isn't so yeah. good. But if you're starting with that now, then when we're hit that point three, four, five years from now, you know, your sites will already be ready. 
Nice. Well, thank you very much. That was, that was really neat stuff. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, now we're going to have our social media minute by Nick Armstrong. Take it away, Nick. My name's Nick Armstrong, and I'm taking this brief break from my binge on Halloween candy to give you the social media minute. We're going to be discussing FeedBurner. FeedBurner is an RSS feed manager, and it's a manager in the same style as Donald Trump, in that whenever it enters the scene, everything automatically turns to gold. Or in my case, rich, delicious milk chocolate. In order to access FeedBurner, all you need is a Google account. By the way... If you don't have one yet, you're a little behind the times, and you're probably using AOL. I'm going to laugh at you now in geek speak, colon minus capital D. <laughs> oh, LOLs. One of the cool things that you can do with FeedBurner is to manage and track your RSS subscription stats, RSS being a really simple way to syndicate your content to the rest of the web without them having to visit your website. With FeedBurner, you can also really simplify podcasts or videocasts. You can even create a newsletter. And my favorite trick, you can use it to build a list before you launch your site. That's right. If you've got an upcoming product launch, just use FeedBurner to create a list of people who are interested in your product. And you can manage and see their emails straight through FeedBurner which I know, if you're into online marketing, makes you about as excited as I get over Halloween candy. Speaking of which, my omnipotence is running thin and my blood sugar is running low. I'm Nick Armstrong for the Social Media Minute. Back to you, Sockstein. Hey, I'd like to talk about our podcast sponsor. Uh, Audible.com is our first sponsor for Einstein and Sock Monkey, and they have over 75,000 titles of audiobooks and also some magazine and newspaper kind of things to choose from. Uh, if you uh, are interested to try it out, we do have a special link um, related to our podcast. That's at uh, audiblepodcast.com forward slash Einstein. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com forward slash Einstein. So if you go there and check it out, you'll get a free uh, book for trying it out at that URL. And book pick. Um, I've been an Audible user for years and years, actually. Um, in fact, one of the first devices I used to use it for, I had a... Uh, a Rio Carbon. I don't know if you remember that MP3 oh, wow. player. I love the UI yeah. on that, actually, that Rio yeah. Carbon. It had a scroll wheel, and it, which clicked. Um, and that's how you navigated through songs oh, okay. and menus. And it was it was like a precursor to the... I don't know if it's a precursor, but maybe it was around the same time as the very first iPods. But um, anyway, it was a really nice user interface with the scroll wheel. Um, hard, you know, physical hard yeah. scroll wheel. Anyway, so I've been using Audible for a long time. And uh, this is a book I read... Um, a year or so ago, called Einstein. It's a biography. I figured that was appropriate since uh, <laughs> A, I'm really into science, and B, our podcast is Einstein and Sock Monkey. And that's by Walter Isaacson. came out in 2007. But uh, it's a really wonderful rendition of Einstein's life and you know just certain aspects of it. There's so much to his life. Oh, yeah. But it was based on some recently, um, I don't know if discovered is the right word, but uh, letters that Einstein had written that had become available to the author. Okay. And so it's a new, kind of some new directions on how he thought. And uh, one of the most fascinating parts I thought was, obviously relativity is one of the things he's most known for, you know, which um, you know, he wrote that, that paper as a, uh, when he was a patent clerk. Pretty, pretty early in his science Very career. early. Well, yeah. his, he got you know, four big papers in just a couple of years there around the 1904 time frame. Um, you know, seminal papers, four in a row, boom, 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 boom. And they're all in that time frame. And... That having to do with time, you know, relatively has to do with the relationship of time and space. And one of the, the talk about context that the author talks about is that when he was at the patent clerk's office, he was on the train line 
the main train line through Europe went through, you know, Bern, I think is where he right. was, right? And the clock tower at Bern was the master clock for the train system in Europe. So that's wow. how they synchronized clocks throughout the train network was off of that clock. And um, relativity has a lot, of, lot to do with the, uh, the synchronization of clocks. Yeah. And so, and how, and how do you synchronize them and what does it mean to have them synchronized. <laughs> and there were a lot of patents coming into the office about how to do that mechanically and electronically, you know, really? you know, back in that age. So the fact that he had a seminal physics paper about the theory of the relationship of time and space had a lot to do with the context of where he was and the time he lived in it. And of course, you know, who he was and how his brain worked. But um, I just thought that wow. was really cool. So is the is this book more along the lines of like Einstein as the man or his science or it's it's much more Einstein as a man, yeah. um, but you know the science goes well, along of course. yeah certainly goes along with it. But it's much more about him, his personality, his relationships, and um, it's, it's a great really read. Cool. It's really well written. It's very accessible. Um, I don't even think there's any equations in it. You know, it's, uh... <laughs> well, on an audio book, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, exactly. get any big equations. On an <laughs> so that's my recommendation for uh, for this month. Awesome. This issue. Thanks. Well, we had a great interview last week with Jeremy Keith, or last episode, I should say, with Jeremy Keith, the author of HTML5 for Web Designers. And um, we're going to pick a UX book for this next uh, time that we have, the next book for the book club, if I could speak correctly. Um, so the next book that we're going to be uh, reading as... Uh, as a podcast and discussing with you guys and hopefully the authors is Undercover User Experience Design. Actually, I mentioned this last week in the yep. news section. Right. It's, it was um, just released. It, right, because it was just released. And I have my copy in my Ooh. hands. It, well, it's in my bag. <laughs> it's, it's in my hands as I speak. I think. And, um, and it's written by Kenneth Bowles and James Box. Nice. And they are, happen to be co-workers uh, of Jeremy Keith's. And um, anyway, it's... Uh, We're going to be accused of being um, <laughs> clear left and... Uh, a list apart. A, a, yeah, a list apart fanboys here. I know. It's yeah. true, though. We are. <laughs> I am. Yeah, but it's... I haven't read the whole thing yet. I just got a couple days ago. Cool. I but, love, um, love their subtitle. Learn how to do great UX work with tiny budgets, no time, and limited support. Yeah. And so I'm really looking forward to figuring out what, what they have to say. Just flipping through it, they have a lot of awesome stuff, um, a lot of really good examples for one, which is always nice, but a lot of good um, processes and um, ways to approach uh, like group sessions with people. They explain what the KJ method is, if you have no idea what that means, um, how to approach um, wireframing. So it's a little bit... Um, for folks, from my understanding of it, it's a little bit for folks who are really kind of new to the user experience world, mm -hmm. and also folks who have done it for a while but maybe need to, you know, like me. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm now in a new organization. There, there's a whole team of UX people in this place, but one of our goals is to increase the um, acceptance and the need for the UX department, I guess, sure. as a whole. So this is one of the ways to kind of as an undercover UX person, make everybody <laughs> want the UX people around because it is one of the things they say is you know UX design. It's an invasive process. Hmm, it's an extra step that right. you've got to take. Right, which means it costs money for the company right. to implement. And that. so if if people are not really behind it, it's right. going to be hard to get buy-in from the, the people. Whether if you're an independent person, buy-in from your client, 
or from your boss, right? One, one way or the other. So we are gonna um, we have a link. The well, the website is uh, undercoverux.com, and there are links to buy that on Amazon UK and the US. And we are going to discuss it on episode eight. Okay, Super. this is episode five, so we've got a few episodes to read the thing. It's not very long. It's it's a nice short read. Um, you know, yeah, 175 pages. Anything that gives more, you know, uh, evidence and support for you know selling clients on both user experience and design in general. I, I think, you know, a lot of clients who don't have that background. Yeah, it's hard sometimes for them to understand why. It costs whatever it does to design something. Why do I need a designer? Can't you just sketch something out and make the, you know? Yeah. Can't the programmer just make it happen? It's like, no. Or, or what I've heard sometimes <laughs> no, as really. a UX designer, I've heard, well, why do you need to talk to all these clients and so forth? Aren't you supposed <laughs> to know what's what's the best? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy. I know it's the best for me, <laughs> but you're not designing the website for me. <laughs> yeah, and so I think, I think this um, the book will be really good for... Uh, I'm thinking, especially web designers or developers who don't really do a lot of this stuff now, cool. but want to bring it more into their business or or whatever. Cool. So, um, leave a comment on the blog. If you go to EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com, there's a book club link, and go to that section, and there's a, a blog post on on this book. Leave comments on there, and uh, we'd love to uh, pick one person to discuss it with the book with the authors with us. On on episode eight, so wonderful, and we do encourage you to to leave comments or questions, either comments about the book, things you found interesting, uh, questions you've got as you're reading through the book, that kind of thing, because we'd like yeah. to we'd like to get start building some interaction about around the books that we're picking is our is our hope. So yeah. Okay, let's go on to our blog picks for the week, Ron. Okay, so my blog pick for the week is. Uh, Baratunde.com, and that's a B-A-R-A-T-U-N-D-E, Baratunde.com. And Are you sure that's how it's pronounced? I'm reasonably <laughs> sure, but I won't okay. stick to it. My name's pretty hard, too, so I won't claim to know that one. Um, so on his, uh, on his blog, he defines himself that he exists at the intersection of comedy, politics, and technology. And I heard him talk. Uh, he was a, a guest on the Twit uh, Network on This Week in Tech with Leo Laporte a few weeks ago. And he's the web editor at The Onion, which I find hilarious. <laughs> um, love love oh, The Onion. Yeah. He's also a host on the Science Channel of their show Future Of, which is on Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern. I have not seen that episode, but he's definitely engaged in the technology world. And he is just wicked smart and funny. And hearing him on uh, This Week in Tech on the podcast, um, his take on things I think is really interesting. Um, very engaging thinker and speaker. So... Um, definitely check him out, and I think he's even more engaging in either audio or video than he is on the blog. Um, but that looks like there's a few videos of him on his blog. Yep, cool. exactly. So it's a good place to start. Awesome. I'll have to check that one out. Well, what the <clears throat> the blog I picked for the week is I heart wireframes, or I love wireframes. <laughs> I thought you were just joking when you put that in the. No, end. no, it's a, it's actually what it's called. It's <laughs> the web. It's um, I, I realize that I'm picking a lot of. Tumblr blogs lately, but it's just how it works. It's wireframes.tumblr.com, and uh, it's kind of it's kind of it's multi, it's several things. For one one thing is just a whole bunch of screenshots essentially and photos of people's wireframes that they've done. Okay. What I'm looking at now, there's a lot of examples of wireframes on a grid-based layout. 
Perfect. As you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. I see some here. And um, so as in addition to just really a wide variety of great wireframe examples, um, which nice. helps me because sometimes I don't think of doing a wireframe a certain way, um, whether it's hand-sketched or if you use a tool like OmniGraffle or Balsamic or something like that, um, there's a lot of examples. And that's that's nice for one. But also the, they have a lot of really great um, templates and toolkit downloads. Hmm. If you're using OmniGraffle, Balsamic, Illustrator, Keynote, Axure, or whatever you, uh, software your you're using, mm-hmm. um, then they have a lot of... I don't think they really have downloads for your pen and pencil, but <laughs> but they have, um, like, as far as um, there's a great Illustrator wireframing toolkit for iPads and iPhones and mobile devices. Um, there's one that has a whole bunch of little icons that you can use for the wireframes that are easy to use. And so I would definitely check it out, wireframes.tumblr.com. Um, and if if you are making wireframes or you don't really know where to start with wireframes, then it's a great place to go. And at, throw this in there, there's also once in a while there's a nice um, uh, tutorial on how to do different things. So Awesome. Well, once again, we have come to the end of our podcast of episode five. Thank you so much for listening. We're really excited. We've had over 12,000 downloads. so cool. Which kind of blows my mind uh, after only four episodes. So uh, thank you to everyone who's listening and telling your friends and so forth. Uh, Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks especially to Josh Mulligan for doing the show notes for us every single week and for Nick Armstrong doing the Social Media Minute. And I, I just forgot to mention this to you, Ron. We're, I just talked to him. We're hoping to get him on episode six, maybe. Oh, great. To actually be on the podcast and discuss stuff. Cause, Super. Yeah, he's a quick yeah. thinker. It's a fun yeah. guy to talk to. Because he does know a lot more than social media. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, so we encourage you to visit the website at einsteinandsockmonkey.com. Uh, check us out there. And you can find me on the web at, let's see, on Twitter. I'm at Ron underscore Z or on the web at codegeek.net. On Twitter, I am at CleverCubed, and my website is clevercubed.com. Also, make sure to please um, subscribe to this podcast in iTunes if you can, and rate us and leave a comment about what you think on iTunes. It really helps kind of bump us up in the ratings, for if nothing else. Yeah, so we'd love for more people to find out about the podcast, and that's the best way to help us promote it is to give us a rating and some comments. In, uh, in iTunes, so that would be great. And follow us on Twitter. You know, we like we love interacting, and uh, we actually have a there is a Twitter account for the podcast as well, which is uh, at Einstein Monkey. So uh, follow Einstein Monkey, or follow Clever Cubed, or follow Ron underscore Z, and we'd uh, we'd love to chat back and forth with you. All right. Well, until then, have a great week. Have a great week. <laughs> Bye. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by. CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency, and CleverCubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at BlackLabWorld.com. Inside.